This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present this week's episode of Who Killed the Women of New Bedford, Mass. 30 years ago marked the beginning of a reign of terror. The women who went missing had two things in common. They were drug addicted and each from, or at least last seen in, New Bedford. Nine were found murdered along local highways. Two were never found, and the killer was never caught. We analyzed a lot of these areas, and it would lead us to believe that we want to go back to those areas and look for at least two people in hopes of finding them if they are there. Now, no one has ever been charged for the murders, leaving a cloud of mystery hanging over southeastern Massachusetts for three decades. As we headed into 1989, six bodies had been found in the highway murder case. By the end of March, there would be two more. No arrests had been made. The families of victims had suffered most. The condition of the bodies made it difficult for medical examiners to determine a cause of death, except with two victims. Investigators say they were strangled. 11 women missing nine bodies recovered. 30 years ago this month, women started disappearing from New Bedford. In just a six-month time period, 11 victims vanished. One of the most horrific crimes that Southern New England has ever seen, and it's still unsolved to this day. DA says police are now looking at a number of possible suspects. Tony DeGrazio became a suspect. James Baker was a, a truck driver. I wish to state that I demand that your harassment of me be stopped immediately. As investigators found the remains of nine women between the ages of 19 and 36 years old. And they all tend to kill within a comfort zone with an anchor point that could be the killer's home, it could be their place of employment, it could even be a relative's residence. The only suspect ever charged in connection with the serial highway killings in Massachusetts has died. 61-year-old Kenneth Ponte was found dead in his New Bedford home on Tuesday. Officials say his death does not appear to be suspicious. Ponte had been charged with murder after the remains of nine women were discovered along highways in southeastern Mass. However, he was cleared due to a lack of evidence. The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, which has come out with this comprehensive report, defines a serial killing as, quote, the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offenders in separate events. Eleven women go missing in six months. Nine of them found murdered. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Who Killed, a podcast that takes a closer look into cases that you may have heard and others that you may not have. On this week's episode, I'll be discussing the disturbing unsolved case of the New Bedford Highway Killer. 
But before I begin, I'd like to thank the listeners for tuning into my new show, My Passion Case, which can be found on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. And on that show, I interview other podcasters about the cases that haunt them the most. I've been putting episodes out on both feeds, Who Killed, as well as My Passion Case. But please advise that I do eventually plan on releasing My Passion Case on its own feed. I will continue to produce and host both shows, and I do have great guests and really incredible cases to cover in 2020, and I am really excited. I will also be representing all of my shows on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando this May 1st through the 3rd. If you've never been, it is the best way to catch up with all of your favorite true crime personalities. And now that I've gotten all the business out of the way, let's get into this week's case. Who Killed the Women of New Bedford, Mass? New Bedford, Massachusetts is a fishing town roughly of about 100,000 people that's about 40 miles outside of the metropolis of Boston. New Bedford is nicknamed the Whaling City because it was one of the most important whaling ports in the 19th century. And the city actually resides in Bristol County, Massachusetts. And it is most widely known for its great seafood industry. Now, currently, the top three employers in the city are New Bedford's uh, South Coast Hospital Group, Titleist, and Riverside Manufacturing. So things have changed a little bit as far as the demographics go, but during the summer of 1988, it was hot, it was muggy, and fishing was still a primary means of income. And that wasn't the only thing that was going on, because a serial killer had been prowling the streets of New Bedford And in just a six-month span, this killer was able to kill nine women and dumped their bodies along the highway. Now, John Element of the Boston Globe was writing about the case as it went down, and his reporting has been very helpful while compiling the story. But there are some important facts to know about this case before we get too deep. Basically, the New Bedford Highway serial killer is an unidentified serial killer, he or she is responsible for the deaths of at least nine women and the disappearances of two additional women. The killer is suspected to have assaulted numerous other women as well, and the killer's victims were all known prostitutes as well as substance abusers. The victims were all found in different surrounding towns, despite being taken from New Bedford. Now, those cities included Dartmouth, Freetown, Westport, and they were all along Route 140. Now, the victims came from a certain demographic, and that made reporting on missing people a little bit more challenging. Especially, you know, since women in prostitution, it's typical for them to not always be the most reliable people. Not to say that there's anything wrong with it. Now, according to the Associated Press, on December 3rd, 1988, the fourth body had been identified in what they were calling at the time the roadside slains, and that was 25-year-old New Bedford woman, and police said that she did have contact with them as a prostitute. She was identified as the fourth of the five women killed and dumped at the roadside in southeastern Mass at that time. Now, Dawn Mendez was reported missing earlier in September from New Bedford. Her body was found near where the remains of five women had been found since July, just off the brush off of Interstate 195. Now, the killings of these women, all in their 20s, most likely were the work of a serial killer. So, the state police, they brought in trained dogs to search for more victims, as well as evidence or anything that could tie these victims to a possible perpetrator. 
Now, at the time, Thomas Gibney, a spokesperson for the Bristol County District Attorney, Ronald Pina, said that Mendez had a five-year-old son as well as a pretty lengthy record of arrests. Mendez reportedly had links with the Weld Square area, which, if you ask the police, is a well-known area for drug dealing and sex work. New Bedford is a medium-sized fishing town of 100,000 people, but it is also a city that suffers from a lot of the same issues that major cities suffer from. The Boston Herald quoted a woman from the Weld Square area that stated that Mendez was not a regular in the prostitution scene, and that most of the time Mendez actually worked as a babysitter. Despite all that, her body was discovered off of the Reed Road exit ramp off of 195. There was another body discovered just about 150 yards inside the Freetown line along Route 140, which is just about three miles south of where the first body was found in July of that year. Now, the third body was found in November, while the other bodies were found in July. The search began to take on a different tone when... The Connecticut State Police was actually able to bring in some search dogs and police and searchers actually reached out to some of the best search units in the world and they scoured the area looking for any more bodies or any evidence. With the state of decomposition, it was impossible to determine races as well as the causes of death. And officials hoped to identify the bodies using dental records. Now, this was 1988 and 89, so they had to send those records to the FBI in hopes that they would be able to determine who those people were. Police believe the victims would eventually be identified as all from the New Bedford Weld Square area, which would lead you to believe that they also thought that this was one particular individual perpetrating these crimes. Because as I mentioned before, Weld Square is known for drugs and prostitution. Now, investigators did not have a suspect, but they believed that the killer or killers were from the area and very familiar with the highway network. Now, it was believed that someone could have been traveling the area, but that idea is kind of thrown out the window since the authorities felt like it was more of a local because of the way that the, I guess, the killer approached the scenes and the confidence that they had as far as where they dumped the bodies. John Element of the Boston Globe, as I said, covered a lot of this case, and he covered the case when it was first conceived back in 1988, and he wrote in December of 1988 that in what may have been the act of someone planning to kill again, the person who took Nancy Pava's or Piva's life in July also actually took her clothes. So her nude, nude body was found in July of that year, 1988, dumped along the eastbound lanes of Interstate 195 in Dartmouth. Now, this is where it gets a little weird. Her clothes were discovered on November 8th near the remains of another victim who had been found along the westbound lanes of 195. So the woman found in November, authorities believe, was killed at least one month after Pava. Now, the experts say that serial killers switching clothes could be seen as either an act of uh, rational criminal planning or as that of a killer seeking souvenirs for a bizarre private collection, quote-unquote. 
Bristol County investigators lean towards the first view. They believe that Pava's clothes were left near another body to cloud the victim's identity and confuse the search for a killer. The district attorney went on to say that the six women whose bodies had been found since July in the New Bedford area had been murdered by the same person or the same group of individuals, but for some unknown reason, he refused to state that the murderer was actually a serial killer, which is, again, odd because this fits exactly the definition of serial killer. But state police attached to Pina's office also contacted the FBI's behavioral research specialists in Quantico, Virginia, And they talked with the investigative task forces in San Diego as well as Seattle, looking into the Green River killers. At that time, he had not been caught, and that would be one Gary Ridgway. Now, criminal and psychological experts say that the information about the murders that has become public shows all the brutal hallmarks of a serial killer. The experts even said that sufficient research has been done into previous serial killers that provide a rough outline of the kind of person who may be responsible for the murders in the New Bedford area. The experts said the killer would be highly unusual, though not impossible, for more than one person to be responsible. Experts said he would likely have all the outward appearances of normality, but would be seething inside. Now, quoting from the element article in the Boston Globe, he references a new book at that time, The Sexual Homicides and Patterns and Motives, that was written by two members of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit that presented a decade's worth of research on interviews with 36 different violent offenders, 21 of whom were serial killers. What they determined was that every one of the serial murderers, including the son of Sam and John Wayne Gacy, had suffered psychological, physical, or sexual abuse as a child. Most of these men also exploded into violence in their late 20s and early 30s, and they say that the majority of them are white males. Things have changed, obviously, and as time has gone on, it's demographics have changed as well. The FBI study, like others, also found that a large number of serial killers are at least of average intelligence, and that some are actually above average, which makes them a little bit tougher to catch. Again, the experts said, serial killers have been found to be psychopaths, but not technically legally insane. They are people who have lost touch with normal standards of morality, and they find it easy to dehumanize their victims, whom they often consider prey the way a hunter thinks of a deer. It does not surprise the experts that at least three of the victims were known to frequent, as I've mentioned before, the Weld Square area, which was known for its drugs and prostitution. Now, prostitutes and women addicted to drugs are two groups that basically make it pretty routine for people to get in and out of vehicles. So the idea that they're able to determine within a few seconds if this person's safe or not, I mean, there sure are people out there that are street savvy enough, I'm guessing, but... In a lot of these cases, especially in the Green River case, I mean, he just kept going back to the same area, the same area, and doing the same thing, and still, he got away with it for years, decades even. Northeastern University criminologist James Fox said, quote, it's easier to kill a person if you think they aren't worthy, unquote. So authorities at this point in the case were only able to conclude how the victim died in only one of the New Bedford area cases. In that instance, the victim was strangled and was possibly strangled by their own underwear. It is a belief that serial killers like to strangle their victims out of a desire to be close to them as they die. So the search for the New Bedford killer 
just one of many complex serial killer investigations in the 1980s, sparked what experts believe is an increase in serial killings. And not to freak anyone out, because this was the 80s, and that was their thing, they said there were at least 350 serial killers at large in the United States. Now, that number seems very high. I will even acknowledge that. So I don't know if I can endorse that number, but I'm just saying what it's been what was said in the eighties and the eighties were a whole different animal. So it's uncomfortable to think that there's even serial killers out there. I get it. But to think that there's three hundred and fifty of them is it's pretty scary. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So in 1988, the percentage of homicides solved by police was on the decline, and it was actually down from 90% in 1960 to about 75% in 1988. So according to the FBI, the reason that this drop occurred was the increase in the amount of serial killings. Now, anybody who's watched Mindhunter would know that they didn't even start referring to string killings, serials, They had all sorts of different names for what a serial killer was before they landed on serial killer. So to say that there wasn't really any serial killings before this, I highly doubt it. I just don't think it was classified as such. So in King, Washington, for example, they spent six years at this time. They had spent six years and $15 million unsuccessfully searching for the Green River Killer. They were under the impression that he had murdered 40 women Turned out to be much higher than that, and his name actually is Gary Ridgway, and they were able to connect him via uh, paint ships, I believe. And again, prostitutions, drugs, and the ability to lure somebody into your car, all these things make it too easy to become a victim. What authorities say about catching serial killers is that most of the time they're caught because they slip up. And they do so by cutting corners, and police basically have to catch a break. So that's a lot of hoping and wishing, in my opinion. Not necessarily the most uh, comforting thought that they're just waiting for the serial killer to screw up. But again, if it's a serial killer you don't know and you don't have any DNA, you're pretty much stuck waiting for them to commit another crime. During this time, back in 1988, there were... Skeletal remains discovered by hunters walking through a gravel pit, which was also near uh, Reed Road. Now, it was eventually concluded that the woman was murdered by the same person who had killed all the other women. And at this point, this is when the district attorney decided to sort of turn off the access to the media because he felt like the presence of cameramen and all the reporters and different searchers could disturb a crime scene and therefore there would be evidence that would be lost. So I understand that, but it does kind of hurt the public as far as their ability to help the investigation. One of the reasons the DA decided to cut off the media access is that 
There was a search actually planned for the gravel pit before the hunters discovered the body. That tip actually came through on one of their toll-free hotlines, and it was from a confidential source. The tipsters did also urge authorities to search in a second area that had not been examined by investigators, and that was within the proximity of an interchange of I-95 or I-195 and Route 140. Now, police said they have interviewed suspects in the killings, but had not made any arrests. State police still considered individuals in the New Bedford area who had a history of violence against women as their most likely perpetrators. But apparently that did not happen because the case still remains unsolved. John Element, the reporter, went on to say that when Mary Harris was slain in Dartmouth in April, a suspect was arrested within one day. And based on evidence found in the room by state police. So the state police were involved with investigating that killing as well as the killing of the six women in the New Bedford area. But despite both being homicides, the circumstances facing the police were radically different. Now, Harris was a dancer and she knew her killer. Now, he turned out to be a bouncer at the club where she was appearing, and the six women were most likely killed by another killer who had been using the New Bedford area as his quote-unquote hunting grounds. Most experts agree that prostitution and drugs will always make a resolution to a case a little bit more difficult. And one of the experts has been quoted as saying it's more difficult to solve these types of cases because the offender you're dealing with, they're dealing with someone who is planning the crime, someone who has initiated the activity based on some sort of fantasy. And anytime you're dealing with a fantasy, you're dealing with the human mind, which, as everybody knows, is completely unpredictable. Now, in Seattle, the investigation into Ted Bundy, uh, they found that investigators were able to scour the room where a body was found, and they were able to quickly identify the victim and then begin reconstructing the final hours of that particular victim. Now, in many cases, the murderer knew his or her victim. Even drug dealers who are killing each other know each other for a period of time, he said. The New Bedford case, the victims were missing for weeks, and in some cases months, before the bodies were found. And before I end this week's episode, because this is a case that's got so many different suspects, avenues, paths to go down, I just wanted to read off the list of victims, because those are the people that are always forgotten in all of these cases. And the first victim, we'll just go down the list, and it's Robin Rhodes. She's 28. She was last seen in New Bedford in March or April of 1988, and her body was found in March of 1989, just around the side of Route 140. Rochelle Clifford Doparella, 28, she was last seen in New Bedford in late April of 1988, and her body was found in December of that same year along Reed Road, which was just about two miles from Interstate 195. Then you had Deborah Lynn McConnell, who was 25, and she, again, like all these people, were found, or last seen, I should say, in New Bedford, Mass., in May of 1988, and her body was found in December that year as well, just off of Route 140. Then you had Deborah Medeiros, 30, who was last seen again in New Bedford in May, late May, of 1988, and then her body was found just about a month later on July 3rd of that year. So you have Christine Montero, 19, who was last seen in May of 1988. Then you have Marilyn Roberts, who was seen 
in June of 1988. Nancy Pava, who was 36, and she, again, was last seen in July of 1988, but her body was found on July 30th alongside Interstate 195. Then you had Deborah DeMello, 35, who was last seen on July 11th, and basically her body was discovered on November 8th, 1988, also along Interstate 195. Then you have Mary Rose Santos, who was 26, and she was last seen July 16th, 1988, with her body being discovered that following March. Then you had Sandra Botello, or Botello, 24, who was last seen in New Bedford on August 11th, 1988, and her body wouldn't be discovered for a while, and that was April 24th, 1989, again along Interstate 195. Then, the 11th body, Dawn Mendez, 25, last seen in New Bedford on September 4th, 1988, and her body was found on November 29th, 1988, along Interstate 195. So you have all these victims and you don't have a lot of answers, unfortunately. Basically, where we stand today is this is episode one of a multi-part series on the New Bedford Highway Killer. And I hope to have some very interesting guests coming up in the future in regards to this case. So I just wanted to say thank you again so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Who Killed. There will be new episodes dropping every Friday, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you enjoy this independently produced podcast, you can always support the show by clicking on the donate button on both of my websites, whokilledamymahalovic.com or slowburnmedia.com. That's slow minus the W. Now, if the internet isn't your thing and you're more into the mobile payment, you can also help support the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. I will also provide a link in the show notes. Any amount is appreciated, and it really does help these shows get made. If you do enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite shows, especially on Apple Podcasts, because that will help support the show and will also keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. So don't forget to tune in to my newest show, My Passion Case, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, where I speak with some of the top podcasts about the cases they can't shake. If you have any information regarding the New Bedford Highway case, you can contact the documentary team behind the Highway Murder by calling their hotline at 508-505-INFO. And I'm sure the FBI would like to hear from anyone who has any information that could lead to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of the New Bedford women. They can always be reached at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Now, if you'd like to stay up to date on my shows and the cases that I've covered, you can always follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And thank you again so much for listening this week. Until next time, be safe.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Something is creeping. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 